Hello and welcome to the Global Inquirer. We are an undergraduate research podcast based in the University of Virginia, and each week we bring you stories from across the world to explain how global trends are impacting real lives. I'm your host, Emma Ross. Today we're talking about the modern implications of the Cold War and how we can see echoes of it in modern politics. We are currently sitting down with Alma Wolf, a first year. Hi, this is my first episode, so I'm excited to be here. Thanks, Emma. And Katya Senko, our fourth year. Yes, and this is my last episode, so I'm very excited to be here. And all three of us happen to be foreign affairs and Russian and Eastern European studies majors, so this should be a very interesting conversation. So could you both take us through why you chose this specific topic? Right. So as you mentioned, we're all Russian and Eastern European studies majors. And so a lot of us, whenever we introduce ourselves and our majors to other people, we get a common reaction. And I know Alma was talking to me about how whenever she tells her peers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Since I'm a first year, I'm still we're all still trying to figure out our majors and all of that. But um, I'll tell my friends, yeah, I'm thinking about studying Russian and foreign affairs. And they'll say, oh, Russian, are you a communist? (laughs) And there's just kind of this like negative implication that I've always noticed and thought, well, that's kind of odd. Right. I was, I, I met a woman at a train station in Hagerstown, Maryland once who had a very similar reaction. When I told her that I was a Russian and Eastern European studies major and that I had just gotten back from Russia, and this was in the summer of 2018, she leaned in really close and she got really quiet and she's like, so do you think Putin's a communist? And I was like... <laughs> Vladimir Putin is a lot of things, and I don't know if we should be most concerned if he's a communist right now. So those kinds of interactions kind of brought up the question of how Cold War mentality manifests itself into Generation X and into baby boomers today, and even into Gen Z, as Alma was talking about. And it also raises the question of how our policymakers still manifest this Cold War mentality today. Right, yes. So we, when we came up with this question, we were wondering how many of our Congress people um, were socialized during the Cold War. So we defined this as uh, they graduated high school by 1991 or by the end of the Soviet Union. And we discovered that more than 90% of the men and women serving in Congress graduated high school before 1991. So that is an outstanding amount of our current lawmakers who really were socialized during the Cold War have a lot of this Cold War mentality. And so, you know, how does that affect current policy and current attitudes towards Russia and internal politics in the United States? So the Cold War is a very complicated time and there's so much to unpack there. How did you particularly go about this question? So we started by contacting Professor William Hitchcock of the UVA History Department. Thanks to Emma, actually, who's taking his class on the Cold War. So I teach 20th century international affairs from a historical perspective. I teach classes on war and society in the 20th century, teach a a large survey of the Cold War, and I teach uh, smaller courses on uh, World War I and, and other topics. I also do a big class on World War II. So I cover all of the complicated and sometimes really depressing stuff about the 20th century. So we sat down with him to give us a good framework on how to understand the Cold War and how to apply what historians understand about the Cold War to a modern framework. The Cold War is a very powerful historical framework to understand international relations, and it's natural that people would like to use it to apply to other times in history. 
But actually, I think the Cold War is a very distinctive construct, and it required two pieces of the puzzle for it to work. One is a geopolitical rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union between 1945 and, and the late 1980s. So there was a real geopolitical conflict over who controlled what territory. But what made it distinctive was there was also an ideological conflict between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And they had two entirely different worldviews about how to organize society, how to organize uh, international, the international order. One was motivated by you know, liberal democratic capitalism, the other motivated by communism. These were two very different systems of thought. They were related in some ways, but very, very different. So if we look today and say, is there a new Cold War? We have to ask, does it fit the definition of the Cold War, which was both a geopolitical and an ideological rivalry? And some, in some cases, maybe we have some of that. In other cases, I don't think we do. Where does this atmosphere of fear come from? Are they valid in being afraid of what used to be the Soviet Union, which is now Russia? Do we have historical examples of times where they've acted aggressively and could possibly harm the U.S.? Americans in the, in the past have had a lot of good reason to be afraid of communism. Communism was seen as this thing totally opposite to capitalism. And you know, America, we love capitalism. We're totally founded on capitalism. And so when the Bolshevik Revolution happened and, you know, the Russian Civil War in 1917, Americans were really worried that this kind of revolutionary fervor would reach the United States and that communism might start to upset our capitalist, you know, way of life. And so this made the Cold War really ideologically based, you know, communism versus capitalism. And it created a large fear in many Americans that we were coming to a fever pitch of chaos and that if communists and Soviets infiltrated America, we would have the death of capitalism, which was seen as a really bad thing. On top of that, their fears were justified. There were a lot of Soviet spies, Soviet people that came and were able to infiltrate systems in the United States. Right. So, for example, George Colval, who was seemingly a very normal American citizen and a, a very decent engineer, was literally recruited into the Manhattan Project. And he was actually a Soviet spy. And so that is a huge stain on United States intelligence capabilities. While he was the only Soviet spy to infiltrate the Manhattan Project, the repercussions of that were huge, and that advanced the Soviet abilities to construct the A-bomb very rapidly. And uh, fun fact, this guy was actually posthumously awarded Hero of the Russian Federation Award in 2007 by Putin. That's really funny that you bring up the Manhattan Project, because once the Red Scare kind of came a little bit higher at the peak with McCarthy and everything, even the head of the project, Robert Oppenheimer, wasn't immune from criticism. I mean, he had a distant connection or something with a brother or a cousin or a relative who might have been part of the uh, communist club at one point who wasn't, but he was kind of not so subtly ousted because of this estranged connection. The whole fuel behind the Red Scare is so interesting, and it is actually very justified. Emma, you and I were talking earlier about the Rosenbergs and about how they were able to infiltrate daily life in New York City and how influential they were as spies and how much they were able to get away with. Even more recently, the former CIA director Robert Gates explained in his book In the Shadows that a 1985 Soviet research project shows that the Soviets were able to leverage their personnel at the United Nations to achieve their foreign policy and their intelligence goals. And that was all the way in 1985. 
and this subversive Soviet activity within the United States lasted throughout the, the Cold War. So that really demonstrates, you know, the impact that it did have on our politicians all the way up to 1985. That's pretty recently. So I can see why all the excitement around communism and fearing the communists would affect the psyche of people in our government. But we don't really know if there's a fundamental change in, you know, the practices of the USSR versus Russia today. I think maybe our politicians are still in new territory and trying to figure out how different the republic is and if they're still engaging in all of these shady activities. Right, Emma, that's a great point. Plus, there's definitely modern sources of paranoia, one of them including the, quote, illegals programs and network of Russian sleeper agents that was busted in 2010. And... The other being, of course, in our very recent purview, the Russian meddling in the 2016 election, which eight U.S. intelligence groups have blamed Russia for. Mm -hmm. So we've looked at all of these serious concrete examples of times where meddling has occurred. Because this was a real fear, how do we see reactions in modern day rhetoric? So I think that one major way that we are definitely seeing these Cold War tensions play out is with the current presidential race and the fact that, you know, one of the leading candidates, Bernie Sanders, identifies as a democratic socialist. You know, right now in the democratic primaries, we have a leading candidate, maybe the leading candidate who describes himself as a democratic socialist. And a lot of Americans don't really know what that term means. It's kind of an elastic term. You know, Bernie Sanders was an independent for virtually all of his political career, so he's really not aligned with the traditional Democratic Party. So he likes to use the word, and other people like to use the word socialist to describe him. There's certain positive associations that I think Bernie Sanders would like us to make between that word and his, his policy objectives. But the truth of the matter is there's a great deal of muscle memory in American political life that suggests socialism, and especially communism, are bad things. Why is that? What is it about those words that seem frightening to many American voters and citizens? One is that communism and socialism um, have been constructed in our minds as radical, as wanting to overturn the old order. And most people don't like radical change. They're afraid of radical change. So I think the radicalism of socialism is something that people uh, worry about. It's generally seen as a way of empowering workers at the expense of wealthy owners. That's the central thesis of, uh, of communism. And that's something that Bernie Sanders has openly embraced. More power for working people, less power for corporations and the wealthy. Socialism and communism were explicitly anti-racist. So they wanted to promote the idea that people across the racial barriers had a lot in common. And that seems to some people a very positive thing and to other people a very threatening thing. You know, there are ways in which communism and socialism were styled in the 1920s as well as in the 1950s as un-American. People said it's un-American to be a socialist because socialists wanted certain kinds of a government to play a big role in political life. They wanted the government to redistribute wealth. They wanted uh, you know, the government to impose high taxes. They didn't believe in religion. In a way, many of these threads are map onto anxieties that Americans have long held about how should our society be organized. Our society is unequal. There's no secret about that. It's highly unequal. Some people are content with that inequality and believe that, hey, it's, that's, that's life. Life's unequal, but it incentivizes you to get ahead, to work harder. 
And others say we should strive for an equal society and government has to play a role in making things more equal. So in his earlier answer, Professor Hitchcock alluded to the fact that the Cold War can be defined as an ideological conflict and a geopolitical conflict. And, you know, we really see the echoes of the ideological conflict um, in this presidential election and in this case of Bernie Sanders. So you guys just provided a very interesting discussion about how the Cold War has impacted rhetoric in the modern day. But do you also have examples of how echoes of the Cold War impact our modern day foreign policy? Yeah, that's a great question. So this takes us into his second prong, which was the geopolitical aspect of the Cold War. We can definitely still see remnants of geopolitical battles between the United States and Russia. One really fascinating case study is that of Bulgaria. Perceptions of Russia and Bulgaria are very mixed. On one hand, they hold a very important place in the Bulgarian narrative and the Bulgarians see Russians as the figures who alleviated the Ottoman Empire from Bulgaria and who liberated the Bulgarians from the hold of the Ottoman Empire. And so to them, the Russian Federation is an important ally and an important historical, and it holds an important historical place in their narrative. At the same time, they're very interested in modernizing and they have shifted to a system of capitalism and they look to the West, toward the West, in order to make these developments. And so what Alma and I have found that there are really interesting conflicts and soft power exercises in Bulgaria. Right, so Katya and I found in 2017 there was a a big military exercise involving 25,000 American and allied forces spread across Hungary, Romania, and Bulgaria. So a really large joint military training effort. And this is kind of wild to us because we didn't even know that there was such a large military presence in Eastern Europe at this point and that, um, you know, America really is kind of preparing for the prospect of some sort of conflict with Russia. So in addition to what Alma said about U.S. troop exercises in Bulgaria, on the East Coast, on the sea, actually, there's a recent Russian resort development. It was a $217 million project, and it is a massive campus kind of that includes a a planetarium and a tribute to the Russian space program. It has this gigantic mural of Yuri Gagarin, and this is really interesting because it represents a very typical Soviet-style soft power attempt by the Kremlin to exercise influence over Bulgaria. Was it a deliberate attempt to sway the Bulgarians to ideologically favor the Russians? We can't say. However, this is just a really interesting kind of pinnacle soft power maneuver made by the Kremlin. Another strong instance of this idea of soft power is the fact that Russian universities highly recruit foreign students. There are over 330,000 foreign students enrolled in Russian universities they want to increase that number even more. And so Russia, they know that a lot of the world sees them as backwards and, you know, has this Cold War mentality. And so they want to improve their international standing. They want to improve uh, how people think of them by, you know, recruiting these students and educating them at their schools. Let's return to the mentality that was created in the Cold War and the dichotomy that existed between the U.S. and Russia. How do we see echoes of that specifically in the modern day? So if we look at this through a Cold War mentality, 
we might be able to find the question of to what extent is this are we promoting democracy in Eastern Europe and especially in Ukraine and Bulgaria and other countries that are close to the Russian sphere of influence. So what's the difference between democracy promotion and containment? Because we exercised a policy of containment all throughout the Cold War that is ideological and geopolitical containment, uh, as demonstrated historically by the Long Telegram or the NSC 68. Professor Hitchcock gave really interesting insight into what America's priorities are. The line is still kind of blurry between democracy promotion and containment. However, as it stands, it seems like the United States is acting to advance our best interests. And Professor Hitchcock does a great job of unpacking what those interests are and how Russia plays into that within a modern context. Well, I think one thing that is a constant amongst elite decision makers in American public life in the 20th century is a belief that America is an exceptional nation. It's distinctive. Its, its path to prosperity and democracy is unique. We're unlike anybody else. Everybody else admires us or they hate us. So, you know, historians have a problem with this narrative about American exceptionalism, but many people in the public, especially in positions of prominence in public life, embrace it. America is distinctive, and you either love us or you hate us. So that framework can be used to organize the world. It might be Russia during the Cold War that is out to get us and that hates us for our freedoms and for our prosperity and for our strength. But that framework can be readjusted so that it could be used to demonize a rising China just as easily as it could be used to demonize Russia. Or it could be used to demonize the Islamic world. Well, they hate us for our freedoms and our tolerance and our modernity. Whether it's true or not is not really your question. The, the question is, how has that influenced policymakers? And I think that's a very inflexible way of seeing the world. Because I think it makes a monolith out of foreign societies. I mean, foreign countries are, are full of a range of opinions, very diverse. They like certain elements of American society. They question other elements about it. But I do think that our political system and our political discourse has been eroded so much that we speak in, uh, in, in terms of stark contrast, black and white, you're with us or you're against us, axis of evil. And this is, um, it's a terrible way of organizing your thoughts about how we should function in the world. What should our foreign policy be? If your framework is you're with us or you're against us, that does all the work for you. It does all the thinking for you. And in fact, China, Russia, the Middle East is filled with people who are both drawn to and repelled by certain aspects of American public life. Um, we have still enormous opportunities through diplomacy, through uh, travel, through educational exchange to promote the points of contact and interest that we share with foreign countries and diminish the areas of conflict with our adversaries. But that kind of work requires some openness and some flexibility on the part of American policymakers. So I do worry about the ways in which the Cold War still distorts our, um, our view of the external world. Are there prospects of improved relations between the U.S. and Russia? I think that the place to begin on that problem is what does America want? What are American objectives in Europe and with its relationship to Russia? So right now, I don't think we know, or at least we don't agree 
we have a great deal of upheaval with our relations with Russia. And that relationship has become highly politicized because of the fully documented effort of the Russian government to interfere in the 2016 election. So a, a, a warming trend with Russia will immediately be viewed through the lens of that experience. If you, you know, the argument will be if you favor relations with Russia, what you're doing is justifying or legitimating their interference in the past election. And of course, we already know that they're trying to interfere in the 2020 election. So unfortunately, the relationship has become a subject of domestic political politics, which is a fascinating moment to the historian, and but also a worrisome problem for the citizen, uh, because that relationship cannot be unlinked from domestic politics. But more broadly, just take it as a foreign policy problem. What do we want in our relationship with Russia? We, we just don't have an agreement. You can have one of two scenarios. One scenario is America wants a strong NATO. America wants a strong Europe. America wants freedom and democracy to be secured in Western, Central, and Eastern Europe. And that means America will signal to Russia, we are not going to let you use a subversion and conflict and war to destroy states on the margins like Ukraine. You cannot use unilateral force in Ukraine. That's a red line for us. We will not let you use your energy exports to, to um, intimidate Eastern European and Central European nations, including, for that matter, Germany. We will demonstrate where our interests lie, and they lie in the West, and they lie in NATO, and whatever you do, we're going to protect that. Well, if we were to demonstrate you know, those interests, our relationship with Russia would worsen. But at least everybody know, would know what it is America stands for. Now, an alternative is to say we don't care about any of that. We want a balance of power in Europe. And Russia has to have a sphere of influence. Russia is a great power. It's a huge nuclear power. If it wants to carve up Ukraine and seize the Crimea, let them. It's their backyard. None of our problem. The main thing is that the United States and Russia have an understanding of who, you know, what the rules of the game are, whose sphere of influence is, is where, and we'll respect that sphere. That seems to me a, a lot more like what the current administration is doing. Is that the road to a better relationship with Russia? It might be. It might be. But we have to ask what sacrifices are going to be made along the way. So I think we could have a better relationship with Russia and a much worse relationship with Western Europe. Or we can have a better relationship with Western Europe and a worse relationship with Russia. We probably can't have both right now. After studying the Cold War and our tense history with the U.S. and Russia, do we want to move up from here? And what does the future look like? You know, I think, I think that Professor Hitchcock speaks to this well, that we've had such a storied history with Soviet Union and Russia that it will be really, really hard to put aside um, this like ideological barrier that we've come to and these walls that we've built up, I think it makes it even harder that now all of us who are studying Russian Eastern European studies, we're being taught by professors who were socialized during the Cold War and who have these same mentalities. So it's kind of just getting passed along. However, I think that there are definitely efforts in the diplomatic community and there are people who believe that we shouldn't be uh, so opposed to Russia, that we should repair relations, that we should become better friends. And, you know, you can see efforts of this in many presidential administrations as well. So I don't think the prospects are as bleak as they maybe appear to be. But we're definitely not looking at being best friends with Russia anytime soon. 
And I see further implications in, you know, what you're talking about, not just with Russia, but, you know, any diplomatic decision that we made during this time period has modern implications, you know, like with the CIA interfering in Iran during the Cold War. Now, today we're dealing with those implications. Same with, you know, Vietnam, Korea, Guatemala. I mean, the U.S. just has so many far-reaching operations that, you know, today is the day where we're dealing with the implications of decisions that we made decades ago. Exactly. And I think a major task for us as a generation will be really calculating what the risk is of continuing a path of worsening relations with such superpowers. And while cooperation looks like it's enabling what we have determined as bad behavior, we have to do an honest reevaluation and see to what extent is this really advancing American interests and to and at what point is it going to start harming the United States? I read recently that during the height of the Cold War, we actually had more diplomatic channels than we currently do Russia. And so this is really alarming to me just as a global citizen and how this is going to impact us as a generation as diplomatic relations keep getting worse and worse because without diplomatic cooperation. And it also makes me worry that we are losing our credibility within Russia's sphere of influence as well. And that's our episode for this week. As always, thank you for listening to The Global Inquirer, and thank you to Katya and Alma for bringing us this week's story. Additionally, a special thank you to our guest, Professor Hitchcock, for his insight. And be sure to join us next week for our live episode, where we sit down with Professor Ruth Mason of UVA Law about the global significance of tax havens in the Panama Papers. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Consider leaving a comment and liking us on Facebook.